The Rare Drug Development Symposium is an interactive global genes event produced in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center that focuses on educating both beginners and advanced participants on the drug development process. Join us for this year's symposium, June 10th to 11th. An optional pre-conference workshop on June 9th will review the current landscape of rare drug development. This is an opportunity to interact with experts, patients, and advocates in the field and uncover your role in advancing drug therapies. To learn more or register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Chandler Cruz was born with the rare genetic condition achondroplasia, the most common form of dwarfism. In 2010, she decided to undergo a series of limb lengthening surgeries, which over a four-year period increased her height to 4'11 from 3'10. We spoke to Cruz, founder and president of the nonprofit patient organization, The Chandler Project, about her experience living with the condition her decision to undergo the surgery, and how she views new therapies working their way through clinical development to promote growth in people with achondroplasia. Chandler, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about achondroplasia, what it's like to live with the condition, and the changing treatment landscape Let's start with achondroplasia itself, though. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? So achondroplasia is the most common form of dwarfism. And what what achondroplasia is, is basically it makes or the arms and legs are grow shorter and disproportionate to your torso. So everyone with achondroplasia um, pretty much has like the average size trunk um, or torso, however you want to say it. But our arms and legs, you know, the bones for that, they grow kind of at a slower rate and shorter. And then by the time they're like done growing, it's kind of like the gene was like, thinks it's they're fully developed when technically they're kind of not since the bones didn't fully grow you know, it's more than just the short arms and legs. The gene also does affect other um, issues within the whole, within the body as a whole. For example, people with achondroplasia have very, very narrow frame and magnum. Um, they kind of have, or we have um, like a depressed, I think that's the right way to say it, depressed nasal bridge. So, you know, our nasal bridge is very has kind of like a deep slope. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of, we also have spinal stenosis, which means, you know, we have a very narrow spinal, you know, there's not a lot of, I would say breathing room really for our spinal cord within our 
spinal column. And so, you know, there's just a lot. It's more than just having short arms and legs that kind of a lot of people think because usually someone with achondroplasia, when describing it, says, well, you know, I'm just my arms and legs are shorter. But yeah, that's kind of the most physical attribute of it. But there are, you know, it does affect the body as a whole. I, I think a lot of people do think of this being a condition where, okay, so you're short. How right. serious are some of the health consequences you talked about? There really are. I mean, they are and can be life-threatening. Um, when, so when you, you have a baby born with achondroplasia or you, you, know, you have a kid with achondroplasia, one um, early on in their life, you know, one of the things you really kind of have to focus on is their whole frame and magnum and everything like that. Everything that involves, you know, their breathing because they do have sleep apnea and, you know, they can stop breathing. Or if you don't, you know, anytime you hold a baby, you have to support a baby's neck. That's just, you know, what you've got to do. But especially for um babies with achondroplasia, we also have hypotonia, which is low muscle tone. And so they are delayed in developing or when developing those kind of core muscle strengths. And so, you know, they don't know, they don't hold their head up as soon really as, you know, normal baby, or I shouldn't say normal babies, but you know, the average, um, milestones, that's what I was looking for. You know, they don't, you know, their milestones are delayed, but they're, I mean, I personally, I do know families who did lose their babies with achondroplasia because their babies stopped breathing and they had horrible, you know, they just had trouble breathing and they just couldn't breathe on their own. And typically when a baby with achondroplasia passes. That's usually the reason is because they've lost breathing. Um, Another issue or, you know, another complication that people are with achondroplasia are aware of is so people with achondroplasia have a 50% chance of passing on the gene to their children And so when two people with achondroplasia, you know, decide to start a family, they know that, you know, they each have a 50% chance of passing on the gene. And when starting a family, the hope is that if they're going to, you know, if they have a baby with achondroplasia, the hope is the baby only gets the achondroplasia gene from one parent and not both because getting the achondroplasia gene from both parents then makes that baby double dominant. And when that happens, I mean, they just, it just, they don't necess- they don't make it home from the hospital. And that's just really, you know, that's, it's heartbreaking that that's, you know, something that when, you know, you have to think about when, starting a family and if you know do you want to start a f- you know you can you, it's just something you have to think about like you think about you know do we want to just adopt or you know do we 
I would say risk it, but you just hope that, you know, if you're going to, if two people with achondroplasia are wanting to start a family, you know, their biggest hope is that their children, if they have, you know, if they have children with achondroplasia, that they get the gene from just one parent. And so it's just, I, I feel like, you know, kind of like we just said earlier, you know, it's not, it, it really is more than just being short, like a lot of people think, because I, because personally, you see it in the media with all of these shows and everything where they'll say, well, you know, we're like every, we're just like everybody else. We just do things differently or we're just shorter. And that's, it's honestly, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because it's really, it's not true. There is a lot of, you know, other concerns that, you know, come with having achondroplasia and other forms of dwarfism as well. But with, you know, achondroplasia being the most common and you see all of these shows about these different families or individuals living with achondroplasia or living with dwarfism, they mostly have achondroplasia. And the whole kind of synopsis of all these series is, you know, we're just smaller and do things differently and that's you know they never really dive deep into the actual genetic sides of things and I think that's really it's something important that needs to be discussed more because you know it's just anybody anybody can like I don't I don't know where I'm going with that so if if you have a question well, you're talking about some of the the hidden aspects of right. the condition. From the flip side, the the manifestation of the disease in its most obvious way is very visible. Right. Are there psychological consequences of having the condition? There's not. You know, no one with a condom, it does not affect you or it does you know, the gene itself doesn't do anything really with, you know, the psychological sides of things, at least, you know, not. I, I, I mean, more in the sense of being in a world where oh. people can obviously see there's a condition. Right. It, it has, what's the emotional life of, of having the condition like? I would say, I mean, it really did, you know, growing up, my family, I'm the only person with achondroplasia in my family. And, you know, growing up, we, I mean, we just treated it like it's just a medical diagnosis that I've dealt with. But, you know, it was easy for me in grade school to, you know, when I would explain it to my friends or anyone, you know, I would do kind of what everyone with achondroplasia says and, you know, say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm short because I have achondroplasia given, but, you know, given I didn't, know anything really about the gene when I was eight years old. But then as I grew up and, you know, started to understand it more, you know, I would be able to say, well, you know, it's more than just being short. I've also got to deal with, you know, X, Y, Z. And it really, you know, over the years, I would really say this past decade um, or the past 10 years, I, it, like it's really become more important for me to advocate and to, you know, spread awareness about how, you know, it's more than just the bones. It's more than just being short. And 
ironically, the reason, you know, I say that is because I actually went through orthopedic surgeries to uh, um, lengthen my arms and legs. And we can talk about that more. But it, it's just, it's funny I, to me. I find it funny, like, how it's so important for me today to advocate really more for the whole genetic sides of things because of what I've done orthopedically, because, you know, a lot of people, you only see the orthopedic sides of a, the orthopedic side of achondroplasia. You don't really see the genetic side of it. And that does, having gone through that, I realize how it really is such an issue today that people aren't aware of really how I don't know the word I'm looking for, but really how severe the gene is itself and how, you know, it really does impact you for your whole life and for, you know, your future and everything. And so it's really important to me to make, you know, spread awareness, how it's spread awareness that it's more than just being sure. And it's more than just what's in the bones. I want to get into some of that, um, but in terms of daily living, what is it like to live with a condition in a world that is built for people of uh, different proportions and sizes? What's it so, like to go to the grocery store or use a right. public restroom? So when I was 16, I was fully grown, my full adult height. I was three feet, 10 inches tall, and... You know, you know, people will always like ask me, you know, what was that like? How was that? And honestly, it was just my normal. And so I kind of had nothing to ever compare it to. You know, I could see how my friends did things, how my siblings did things. And I saw, you know, it was easier for them to do different daily tasks than it was for me. But at the same time, you know, I had been doing it my whole life. So that's all I knew. And so when people would ask me, like, well, how do you do things? I'm like, well, this, I just, you know, this is how I do it. And so it wasn't until, but like, I knew that, you know, going through, uh, I decided to go through these procedures, and I knew the benefits that I would get from that. But, you know, just to, but to answer that question, it, it it was a challenge, and I know it is a challenge for really everyone with achondroplasia because there is this it's it's unfortunate, but it's true. There is sort of what is called this you know proportionate or I would say functioning height in society that you know really anyone who I would say is from five feet tall to six, three, you know, they kind of have, or even taller than five feet, I would probably say five, two or five, three to sort of six, three tall, you know, they don't really struggle with everyday things. But if you're under five feet or if you're over six feet, you do, you know, you do struggle. And so, you know, just doing everything, everyday tasks. I remember there would be times where, you know, my mom would pick me up from school one day and she'd be like, I need you to run into the store for whatever while I, you know, do this in the car. 
And there would be times where I couldn't because I was too short that, you know, when you go to a store and it's the automatic sensors, sometimes the sensors like wouldn't sense me and the doors wouldn't open unless I was like walking next to somebody that, you know, the door could censor or even just going to a restaurant and, you know, you go to the restroom, the doors in public or public restrooms, the doors are so heavy or the handles are so high. And so when you're 310, you can't reach up to pull the handle to open or close the door. And so, you know, that was just kind of, we always had to think about that when we would go out and then, you know, just even going, even in school, I remember my high school, I, there was this one bathroom, all the bathrooms were actually handicap accessible, but there was this one bathroom in our upstairs hallway that you could get in and out from both ends of the bathroom. But one end of the bathroom, you would push the door to get in. And then on the other end, you would have to pull the door to get out. And so I always, you know, when I would go to that specific bathroom, because I had no problem pushing open doors, it was the pulling them open with the handles. So whenever I would use that specific bathroom, I would go in on the end where I could push the door open and then leave on the opposite end to push the door open to get out. I never went out of the, I never went in and out of the same door because I couldn't reach the handle to pull it open or yeah, to pull it open. And so, but again, that was just like my normal and that's just like what I knew. But, and I think that's kind of like with anyone with dwarfism, kind of what they go through, you know, it's just their everyday norm. But then um, when I was 16, I decided to go through these procedures and I went through two leg lengthening procedures. And so today I am now four feet 11, which, so I'm just shy under five feet now. And I never, honestly, I never realized how much my height did affect every, like everyday things. Like I, it, it never, cause I was just so used to it and I never, it just never really did occur to me, you know, that how much, you know, my height impacted my everyday life because I think I was just so used to it. And then once that changed and I started, I started to do things that I never even realized I couldn't do before. And um, it, it it's just, it really was eye opening and, you know, that, Again, I can <laughs> explain. What, what, what was the, what was the biggest change? What was the most eye-opening experience? So, for me, it wasn't until after my second leg lengthening that I realized. It, it's weird how I didn't realize it until after the fact, but I was able to have face-to-face conversations with my peers. You know, I always knew I wasn't having face-to-face conversations with them, really, but or at all. But since I was just so used to it, I never realized the actual impact that it had. And so just 
you know, having that did change for me. I did, I did know, you know, I knew I couldn't before having my procedures, I knew I couldn't drive a car without any sort of, um, at a assisted equipment or anything, but now I can, I can drive a car without needing any assistance and, you know, just really, again, every day things, but really having that face-to-face communication did, I would say was the biggest impact that, you know, for me, because I were looking back, I remember having those kind of, you know, uncomfortable interactions where, you know, I could tell somebody was like, okay, do I, do I kneel when I talk to her? Do I bend over? Do we need to like both sit down at a table? So are I love, you know, you just kind of, you know, I never really had to think about that, but the average height peer, whoever I was talking to would always have to think about that. And so just not for that to not be an issue for me anymore really was eye opening. And I I never realized just how important and how impactful that is to, you know, be able to just go up to anybody on the street and have a face to face conversation with someone. And for me, again, (laughs) that was the most impactful thing that I never, it just never even occurred to me for whatever reason that I would be able to do that after going through my procedures. And also um, I also did lengthen my arms and that itself really was also a big impact because I was able or I am able to, you know, deal with hygiene and drive a car you know, sit a safe distance away from the steering wheel and driving a car. And it's just, you know, I knew those things, you know, were a benefit going into it, but then actually doing it myself, I realized, you know, just how much I, you know, I guess people would take for granted being able to do those everyday tasks. Before you, underwent limb lengthening procedures, there was another moment that you had this kind of self-awareness. You were actually watching a a video of yourself performing uh, in a a dance performance. What was your reaction to that video and how, how did it change your perceptions of yourself? So that's so, every time I talk about this, I still, I'm like, it's so funny how, so I grew, I grew up, in dance. I was dancing from the time I was two or three. I mean, dance was my life. My mom was a dancer. And so of course, you know, my sister and I weren't, you know, we got into dance, but you know, dance became my thing. My sister kind of got out of it pretty soon or pretty quickly. And it was just like, it was just my life. Like, I went every week. And then as I got older, I started going twice a week. And, you know, every year, you know, you work up to the big summer recital. And, you know, we always, it wasn't like, and that wasn't even the first time I ever saw myself dancing. But I think it was just, for some reason, 
my mom, you know, we would get the VHS, then later on DVD every year of the dance recitals and we would watch them. And I think really as I got old, as I got older, dance became more and more important to me and I took it more and more seriously. And so I think, you know, and when you look at, you know, dance is one of those things where, you know, it is one of those things where when you're looking at a performance and you're looking at a group of people doing a dance performance, every person needs to be uniformed. They need to be the same. They need to be, you know, everyone needs to be off on B. If there's one person that makes, you know, one mistake or kind of stands out, you notice it and it kind of, you know, does sort of, I don't want to say mess it up, but you know, it's just, it's noticeable. And again, I, it wasn't the first time I ever saw myself dancing. I do wonder, you know, was it just hormones and emotions, you know, seeing that, but I remember, you know, my mom was playing the video for that year and I told her, I mean, we didn't even get like a few seconds into it before I was told her, I was like, just, I was like, stop, like, stop it, stop playing it. And she was like, what? And she, and I asked her, I was like, like, that's how I look when I dance. And she was so, I could tell she just like, did not know how to answer the question because she was like, yeah, like, like, what are you like? She, she didn't understand what I was asking. And I told her, I was like, well, because, you know, when I'm on stage and I'm dancing with my classmates, you know, I just, I feel like I look like them. Like, that's how I feel like on the inside. Like when I'm out on that stage, I feel like, you know, no one can notice me. Like, I feel like nobody recognizes me. And for some reason in that moment, you know, everything just kind of like, you know, I was looking back at all of these moments um, really in dance and there would be, you know, everyone, people who I like didn't even know after like dance, after dance recitals, people would always come up to me and be like, oh my gosh, I loved watching you dance. Like you were so great. And I was like, thank you. And then I'd be like, I don't, I don't know who that person was, but you know, thank you. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was always like, oh, they must have just thought I was like a really great dancer. But then, you know, looking back, they never said it to any of the other girls in my dance class. Like they people would always gravitate towards me, people I didn't know. And it would be people who weren't, you know, their daughter or niece or whoever was in my dance class. You know, it wouldn't even be their family members. It would be people from who weren't even, you know, connected to our specific dance class. They would come up to me and say, Oh, you know, you were so great. You did such a good job, but they wouldn't say it to any of the other girls in my class. And that kind of like, I I never realized that really until after, you know, I kind of had that moment where I asked my mom, like, that's how I look when I dance. And it's weird that I didn't think about that until like a much later age, but it, I mean, that's, it, that's how it happened. And then after that, you know, I really thought about, you know, when people would come up to me and say that, you know, were they being 
honest or were they just kind of doing that which I find to be, you know, kind of that inspirational porn where they, you know, see the girl that stands out because she has dwarfism and they, you know, want to make sure they pat her on the back and tell her that she did a good job. And honest, and that's after, you know, kind of seeing that one video. I mean, that's kind of what I, I mean, that just everything just kind of like, you know, that's how I saw it. And it kind of, it really did do, I wouldn't say it, affect, it didn't do anything, I would say, really to my self-esteem, but there was a long period of time, and I, I still struggle with this today, actually, but I have a really hard time today accepting compliments from people because I think back of when, and it wasn't even just in dance, but it was, you know, thinking back at those moments. But, you know, I would think back on times where people would just out of the blue come up and tell me, oh, you're so great. You're doing so good, you know, whatever. But then they wouldn't say it to anybody else around me. And they would they would be people who didn't even know me. And so it that really kind of did impact me negatively because, today, it, like I said, something I struggle with today is taking compliments from people because I always just think about like, you know, are they just kind of saying that to make me feel good or are they saying it, you know, kind of to make them feel good to say, you know, well, I told someone with a disability or, you know, whatever that, you know, they're doing good and hopefully that made them feel better about themselves when we, we, we never need that. Like, you know, I think a lot of people with um, any sort of, you know, disability, they understand that because, you know, inspirational porn is kind of, I mean, it is a thing. And, but again, I digress. I'm sorry. I I get, (laughs) I get on like, I'll start rambling, but, but it goes back for me. It goes back to watching that dance video and anytime I would be on stage, I would, I would think to myself like, well, you know, I just look like all of the other girls in my dance class and it just, for, for whatever reason, I just, it, it just never hit me until that one video. I, I know the dance and I like, I remember specifically like what the dance was and everything, but it was just one of those things where I was like, God. Like I, I finally thought to myself, you know, not, nothing's ever going to change or that I was like, that's not going to change unless I do something about it myself. And so, but it was one of those moments where I was just like, I really am truly different from everyone else. Like I really am. You made reference a couple of times to the fact that you have undergone lane limb lengthening. I don't think most people are familiar with this. What is it? What does it entail? How many surgeries did you have to undergo to to do this? And and what's the post-surgical period like? So I, so limb lengthening is exactly (laughs) how it sounds. You lengthen your limbs, your arms and legs. 
Um, it's actually a fairly common procedure, not really for people with dwarfism, but for other conditions. But basically what they do, and I'll just kind of speak about my, you know, just leg lengthening specifically. What they do is they make a cut or an osteotomy, if we want to be technical, and the both both femur bones or both thigh bones, which is the femurs, and then your tibias and your fibula, fibulas, which is your lower legs. And so, and now they actually can do it internally. And so for, if there's no deformity correction needed, it can all pretty much be done internally, which is great. But to speak from my second leg lengthening experience, um, I needed correction done on my tibias. And so what they do for that is they cut the bone and then they'll place different, they'll place screws in different areas on the tibias. And then those screws do stick out of your leg and then they kind of stay assembled together through these metal frames, which are known as, or which are called fixators. And then those metal frames are held together by six different struts. And each of these little struts, you, it has like a, it's basically a screw itself and you twist it almost every day. You get this schedule, but basically you turn these struts every day and it pulls the bone apart from where the bone was cut about um, about a millimeter a day. Same for in the femurs. Um, with the femurs, they can put a telescoping rod right into the femur. And within that rod, there's this little motor. And then the motor is activated by this external big remote control that has a magnet on it. It kind of, (laughs) it sounds made up, but it's true. And you put this magnet over right where they cut the bone or right where the little motor is inside the rod. And it activates it to pull the bone apart as well. And so every day when you're lengthening your femurs and your tibias, for achondroplasia, you can grow about, or you grow about a millimeter a day. And that, if my calculations are correct, and my memory serves me, that's about growing an inch in height every two weeks. So every two weeks, I was about an inch taller, maybe more, maybe less. And um, with each of my leg lengthening procedures, I lengthened a total of six inches. And um, that's lengthening three inches in the femurs and three inches in the tibias for one surgery. And that overall, it takes about, it takes about three months to do the whole lengthening. But then for every day that you lengthen they say as a day of consolidation and so you do three months of lengthening and then you have to do three months of consolidation and if you do have the external fixator devices on you have to have 
them on during the consolidation phase just to keep the bone in place and stable. And so you're in these frames for pretty much about six months, give or take. And then they come off and you're six inches taller than when you started or when you went into surgery the first time. And there, it is a lot of physical therapy and patients have to know that going in. It's, you know, it, it's pretty extreme, but it's very doable. I mean, kids, you know, it's not extreme in the sense that it's, I would, I mean, I, I feel like it, you know, it looks and sounds a lot more excruciating than it is, but it is a lot, it is a lot of hard work and you, it is something that, you know, you need to be committed to and, you know, you've got to go through this physical therapy. And so it's just, but it's at the end of it, it's very rewarding and I remember after my first lengthening and just being at this new height, it was kind of a surreal experience. I just, you know, you never think like, oh, you can actually make yourself grow taller. And it, it was just a very, it's exciting and it's kind of weird at the same time, but overall very rewarding and for you know if it's what you want to go through um but and i i do also want to clarify that limb lengthening for dwarfism is it is it does benefit you medically with um because before my procedures my legs were very severely bowed and i knew i was going to need some, you know, some sort of straightening done sooner rather than later at 16. And so I just decided, you know, I knew limb lengthening was an option. And I knew that I was going to have to at least get my legs straightened at some point as well. And so I just decided to kind of, I mean, I just decided to do both. Um, But also what limb lengthening does with the way they um, do it the first time. And again, I'm not an orthopedist, but they do, um, they make these different, they kind of like correct the pelvic tilt, which is people with achondroplasia have, you know, our pelvis is also affected. And so it does help alleviate pressure on the lower spine, which is very important. And so there are a lot of, you know, medical benefits that do come with having, you know, having limb lengthening. But I also clarified it, you know, people, you're only, you know, pretty much going to really get, you know, the orthopedic, you know, it's going to help you orthopedically. And, you know, overall, that does help your overall well-being and your overall health. But it's not, you know as grateful and as much as I, you know, loved going, you know, all of, you know, going through all of it, it hasn't changed anything, you know, genetically and it has not changed, you know, going through it doesn't change, you know, any, you know, potential, 
risks that I can have from the gene later on in life or, you know, from passing it on to my, you know, future children, should I choose to have any? And so, you know, it, it, it does help me live a better life for myself and a healthier life. But overall, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do anything to the genetic side of things. A few years ago, you founded the Chandler Project. What is the Chandler Project and, and what does it do? So the Chandler Project provides, what we do is we provide those affected with achondroplasia with the latest research and information in the different pharmaceutical and surgical developments that are happening and becoming available for patients with achondroplasia because within the past 10 years, there has been a lot of new um, or there has been scientific discovery and pharmaceutical developments for potential therapeutic options for patients with achondroplasia. And so the Chandler Project helps to provide patients and families with, you know, gaining or having access to that information because unfortunately there's a large voice within the achondroplasia community that don't support having therapeutic options, but there is also a big community that does want those options. And so, you know, I saw that there was a void in that and decided to start my own nonprofit and provide patients and their families with this information and being able to have access to these, you know, different potential new treatment options because they really weren't able to get it anywhere else, get the information anywhere else. It's an interesting point you you just mentioned. There are sensitivities within the achondroplasia community. There are people who feel there's nothing wrong with them that needs to be fixed. How does this complicate the development of therapies and and the treatment landscape? It, 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 It does, you know, it really does complicate i would it does complicate the developments because there is such a large number of people who you know think they don't need to be changed and that's not what you know the different therapies that are being developed aren't to you know it it's not to change anyone it's to help or change anyone with achondroplasia it's to help prevent and alleviate a lot of the medical risks and complications that can occur, can occur with having achondroplasia. Like we mentioned early on, you know, babies or people with achondroplasia can have sleep apnea or they can have, you know, they have trouble breathing and that's due to, you know, the narrow passageways and with how the, you know, FGFR3 gene, which is the gene that makes up achondroplasia, because it's how it impacts all of the areas in our body. And, you know, these therapeutic options that are being developed are to help prevent those complications from occurring. Because one thing when having, you know, when you have a child with achondroplasia, you're not going to know what they're going to 
you know, what health complications they're going to have. I was very lucky growing up that, you know, I went through with the routine MRIs that you have to go through and I went through all, you know, different follow-ups, but I was really lucky that the only surgeries I ever had growing up prior to my elective limb lengthening were ear tubes. And, you know, I was very lucky for that. But unfortunately, there were a lot of friends I had who, you know, they had to have spinal fusions, they had to have decompression, they had to have shunts, they had to have trachs, they had to have um, their tonsils and adenoids removed, you know, all these different things that you just don't know when you're going to have a child born with achondroplasia. You don't, you know, you're not given this handbook of what, of what they're, what complications they're going to have. And so these therapeutic options that are hopefully becoming available soon are to help prevent the health risks and complications that can occur with having achondroplasia. And I think it's just so important that, um, you know, people know that it's an option and that, you know, it truly is all of these therapies truly are to help prevent these complications from happening. There are multiple therapies in development to treat achondroplasia. How do you view these and, and what expectations do you have for them? I view them all as, you know, they they all are, they're all different, but they all kind of serve the same or they all serve the same purpose. And so, um, you know, I think it's very exciting, but they, they all also, um, like their product, not protocol, but with how they're administered, um, are kind are different. Some are injections. Some can be, you know, an injection once a week or twice a week. You know, they're all, you know, they're very different with how they're administered, but overall, all of them are, you know, kind of, they serve the main, you know, they're serving the same purpose. And I think it's great that there's going to be, hopefully more than just one option for families because it might be with how one is administered versus how another one is administered. You know, it might be better for one achondroplasia patient versus another achondroplasia patient. And to have, you know, the different options available, I think is very important for families and patients. And, you know, I don't, no, you know, will if, you know, a child who's going through it with one um, drug, you know, will they be able to use another one at the same time, you know, because everything is all still in development. But to have, you know, just more than one option, I think is so exciting for you know, new parents who have a child with achondroplasia. It's exciting for me, I am not a parent and I'm not going to be anyone anytime soon. But, you know, thinking about my future and knowing the risks I have of having a child with achondroplasia, they're going to have more treatment options than I ever did. And so to have, you know, these different 
options available and have these different therapy options available is very exciting. And I know a lot of parents are very excited that, you know, they're not just going to have one option. They're going to have multiple options. And I think, you know, you, you want that when, you know, you want more than just having the one option. Chandler Cruz, founder of the Chandler Project. Chandler, thanks as always. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.